Hey, it's Dr. Baker calling. Um, just checking in. I wanted to call the landline. Landline, the landline. <clears throat> um, haven't had a drink since Christmas Eve, and I'm flying. Anyway, most importantly, I wanted to call and just give my condolences about Ishii. I'm sorry to hear that, and hope you guys are doing okay. And I'd love to hear from you. Also, I watched Mad Men last night. By the way, uh, it was it was fantastic. Uh, I watched one episode and I fell asleep. But that was kind of by design. I'm trying to get in bed by 9.30 these days. Get a full, restful 6-7 hours before 5 a.m. Uh, indoor cycle training in the attic. <clears throat> uh, give me a call. Hope you guys are doing well. See ya. Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist. Welcome back to Landline Podcast. So happy that you are with us. We have Jeff, the stock guy, with us. Jeff, the hedge fund thousandaire. We're gonna we're gonna figure out what his name is. He's gonna give us finance tips for 2018. Talk about the market in general. Is this run real? Maybe we'll dip a little bit into technology and finance, which is so omnipresent at this point. Maybe we can talk about some of the losers of technology stocks of the past. Um, Twitter always comes to mind with people who've paid attention. But in landline fashion, I am going to read something. This time, it's with a heavy heart, and I'm going to break a little bit from tradition and read something that I didn't write, but my wife wrote. If you got through the drunken podcast from last week, where Anna and I talked about Mad Men without ever really talking about Mad Men, the very end, it was apparent why we were off our game a little bit, which was that our dog was infirmed. And it turned out things took a turn for the worse, and we actually had to put Ishii to sleep. Many of our listeners are a core group of people who know me, but there are listeners out there who don't, and they're learning more and more about the world that I live in and the philosophies I have through the podcast. So maybe you've heard about Ishii. Ishii was a one in a million dog, and I think that this beautiful um, eulogy that my wife wrote um, shows that. And some of you have seen it, unfortunately, on social media. We know how I feel about that, but of course, there's a time and a place for everything. So... <clears throat> Here I go. I don't think I'll cry because I've cried so much in the last two days that I'm running out of tears. And Jeff actually factors into this because he has a unique perspective on the um, the days of Ishii's demise. So anyways, here we go. <clears throat> Ishii Lucy McKay, 420.06 to 13.18. <clears throat> Ishii Lucy McKay was born perhaps on April 20th 2006 in the wilds of western North Carolina. Little is known of her time as Tammy with an I with a heart as a dot on the I. She spent the first year or so of her life as an independent agent. She was shot at two pieces of two pieces of buckshot remained lodged in her body throughout her life. Broken toothed and a teen mother. 
somehow, somehow, she found herself at the Asheville Humane Society. On September 15th, 2007, a long, loving gaze was held between Anna and Ishii, followed by a saucy yawn. They were rarely apart from that day forth. Ishii loaded up-up into the truck and moved from one coast to the next five times. She famously did not budge from her seat but once on the first trip. By the last, she savored a sunny dip in the Clark Fork of the Columbia River with her brother Tim. Her early years were marked by epic adventures. She climbed South Sister twice, 10,358 feet, raced behind her mom's mountain bike through the Central Oregon Desert, created a sport called tree gaining, beavered around countless high alpine lakes, rivers, oceans, and streams, always on her own terms, and gave hot pursuit to endless chickens, cats, skunks, and other creatures. In an episode that has become legend, she was separated from her family for 10 days, only to be reunited, thanks to a citywide effort, in a backyard in northeast Portland. In her old age, she enjoyed leashless walks through Forest Park in Portland, Pine Park in Hanover, the Cranberry Bogs of Nantucket Island, Beaver Brook in Waltham, Mile 5 in Bend, Central Park in Manhattan, Ralston Road in Waitsfield, and countless other places. Ishii means stone in Japanese, and none would argue that name did not suit her. She was often found sitting 20 yards away from the action, keeping an eye on things. The Sentinel. She was a child of nature and inspired appreciation for its pleasures, great and small, in all who knew her. Throughout her life, she embraced the sanctity of a shallow, paw-dug dirt hole, a cool breeze, and the kiss of the sun on her face. If she sat there so long, the full moon rose above her. All the better. On Christmas Eve, Ishii lagged behind during a stroll through the neighborhood. Undoubtedly, by her design, her family was entirely unaware that lymphoma had progressed to its end stages throughout her body. Her infinite spirit left her body last night. Her family took solace in watching a fat moon rise over Mount Hood, imagining their sweet girl at peace. (sighs) Ishii leaves behind her mom, Anna Lucy McKay, who wonders how it will feel to walk down a path without her shadow at her heels. She leaves behind her dad, Alex McKay, who understood her and loved her so deeply she would purr when he lay down beside her. She leaves behind Tim the dog, the little cabana boy that breezed into her twilight years and delighted her every day, if only to have someone to share the blame when the trash was scattered across the floor. She leaves even behind baby Homer, a sweetly satisfying coda to the 10 years, 3 months, and 20 days she spent growing up with her mom. She lived her life with dignity, positivity, and her gypsy soul. The trials of the first phase of her life understandably shaped her, but once her confidence was earned, Ishii was a dedicated and endlessly loving companion. Despite it all, she had a way of looking deeply into a person's eyes and seeing the best in them. Blessedly and time after time, we were able to rise to meet her expectations. She has touched lives of so many people. She moved through physical and metaphorical landscapes on her own terms, leaving her exceptionally graceful paw tracks in her wake. Her family asked that if you feel so moved, step outside and reflect on a time and space you shared with her. Look to the sky and send her a bolt of love from your heart. This will help guide her to her next reincarnation. 
finally, and as she always aspired, as a coastal village fisherman. Full stop. So there it is. Um, I think that obviously it's a sad story, but and there's so many things to take away. So much of what I try to preach on the podcast about connecting with the natural world and the things that truly make us happy in life, taking a moment to celebrate all of the beauty that is around us are indicated in that story. And then the other quick thing before I let Jeff get in on a completely awkward moment to be someone visiting and podcasting and having to hear about the death of a dog and see it firsthand is that sitting down and writing that for Anna, which she did on her own as a cathartic way to get through Ishii's passing, indicates to me how great so many of us are at writing and how often we pass that opportunity up for a shorter means of communication, a text, a one-line email without punctuation. I don't think we're all going to go back to writing letters by hand, although probably everyone has had that moment in their life where they said that was their New Year's resolution. But so many beautiful things can be portrayed through writing that um, have maybe been overtaken by photography and video and shorthand. And I think that that really alludes to the quality that writing can hold in our hearts and in our minds. So with that, Jeff, welcome to Landline. Thank you for having me, Alex. Uh, Great to see you. You Uh, as well. And before we jump into the stocks, what's it like to visit someone on a business slash slash personal trip and have their dog die in the middle of it and have have your house, your... um, your what are they called? Not landlords. Your, your hosts tell you you got to beat it and go to a, a motel. Yeah, you know, honestly, it was extenuating circumstances, and I, you know, really uh, d- didn't want to be an inconvenience to you guys. It was hard to see you and Anna in pain, you know, especially with my own puppy at home, and she was sick last week, and it really sounds like it was destiny for you know Ishii and Anna to meet, and so. You know, looking at you guys, I was thinking about, you know, the dreadful day, but I thought Anna put it really well at the end that, um, you know, it's fitting that, you know, Homer is now in your guy's life and she had a really full life. And um, yeah, I I just I I think it was different, obviously, but, you know, I. What else is going to happen when I come to visit Alex? Something's going to happen. It's true. Yeah. And then you celebrated by getting diarrhea at a seafood restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I had bad seafood for the first time in my life. And, you know, I I don't know if I'm going to go to a locally sourced fish restaurant in Portland uh, that's landlocked. And I might have to go to the ocean next time. Well, Ishii works in mysterious ways. So she, <laughs> she was in all of us. Ishii's, Ishii's revenge. Ishii's yeah. revenge. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've gotten through that, let's talk about accumulating wealth, shall we? <laughs> um, so Jeff has a um, both informal and formal career in finance, went to business school with me at Babson College. Shout out to the Babsonites out there. And he is um, an independent and creative thinker when it comes to finance. So... Jeff, like, when did you start your 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 family has a finance background, but when did you personally start like getting motivated to make that what you were gonna like keep your eye on? Yeah, so I'd say the earliest back I can remember was that I was getting set up from the beginning because me and my dad were analyzing Bill James baseball statistics at a very early age, and it morphed from that. Uh, 
you know, by the time I had graduated college into this love of numbers and statistics and, you know, plugging into stocks was the easiest thing in the world. And I just knew it was meant to be from that point. And Bill James statistics like box, like how a book, like how did that work? It was an encyclopedia that you bought. Like how where, yeah, how I did mean, those come to we you? We had those encyclopedia. I, I just remember them being e- extremely large books and we would, you know, take bits and pieces and compile them into spreadsheets and try and let's say develop a criteria at that point in time of who could make the hall of fame and who couldn't, you know, and it's obviously dramatically changed because this was pre steroid era. So we're, you know, probably the work we did then doesn't mean anything anymore. So it was like probably right in the like Sammy Sosa bonds. Cause I, you know, I yeah. know how old you are and how old I am. And that's probably like right when you're into that stuff. Like yes. at 12, Sammy Sosa was hitting like 66 home runs. Yes. Probably. Yes. Interesting. And then w- was that like, how did that come about? He was like, Hey Jeff, I want to teach you about like in depth RBI statistics or you were loved baseball. You guys watched all the time. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Alex, you know this. I was, you know, sick when I was younger. I had leukemia, and one of the—I was really into baseball, and, like, one of the trips we took in the, like, in-case-you-might-die, you know, trip, like, you know, an informal make-a-wish. You know, we toured all the baseball—you know, three baseball stadiums, but I went to um, the—sorry, not the Hall of Fame, the All-Star Game in Houston and got to meet Roger Clemens before— you know, everything came out about him and Cal Ripken and stuff like that. So, like, I've been into baseball for a long time. Awesome. Well, we should talk about that at some point, too. Have you lost your love for baseball now? It's very it's very difficult to watch baseball right now. I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's TV. I don't know if it's the fact that the Red Sox finally won the World Series. I actually wrote a piece about that to my friends one time. But, like, do you ever watch three and a half hours of baseball without a computer on in front of you? No, you know, I, I really just in general have have found it very difficult to sit through an entire game unless it's let's say the Patriots and that you know has societal connotations on its own because why am I able to watch that and not other games but uh, I liked uh, the roster for the Red Sox last year that was the first time I really had paid attention since you know, 04 to some extent. Young guys, homegrown yeah. talent. Yeah, 04 to me was like the peak of exactly. my love for baseball, and it's been anticlimactic ever since, in a sense. It's so that, yeah, let's not go too far into this, but there's a whole, I'm sure that there's a whole book written on it because people are so obsessive, but the entire identity of the New England sports fan was based around losing. And when the Red Sox won in 2004, nobody really knew what to do anymore. And then there was like this huge demand for going to Fenway and like the pink hats came out, the fans who really had no reference for torture and the shame they'd experienced with Bill Buckner and Bucky Dent and all those people. And then ultimately became kind of like a carnival of capitalism at Fenway park and you know <laughs> the carnival so so what about the carnival i well john harry's henry's a finance guy he's a numbers geek how did how did john henry make his money he uh, he was a player in the futures market and did very well if i remember correctly and then wasn't doing too well for a time being and that was those rumors when you thought they were going to sell the red Sox for a period but didn't end up coming to fruition so people think you make money in the stock market by buying stocks and bonds briefly let's go over futures so futures is like it seems vanilla to you because you're like way beyond that but like well futures well to to try and summarize it in a nutshell 
you're basically trying to bet the whether the futures price some picked price that people are generally accepting as where they view the future price of the let's call it S&P 500 is going to go versus the spot price which is where it is today you're effectively trying to bet what's going to happen to that spread if that makes sense the difference between the two and obviously you make a ton of money because there's a lot of leverage involved because you don't really own anything it's a financial derivative but you're you're effectively betting direction and ultimately the thing about futures is you can make ton of money because you can make basically infinity percent on your investment if you if you win and you can get crushed if you lose because you actually have to purchase the asset supposedly and pass it off at the price that you missed at. I mean that's not a great right but it, that's not a great explanation but like if your bet is wrong you get caught with your dick in your hands ultimately. Yeah, it does I mean unless you're willing to take delivery of oil, oil or sugar. Or, yeah. Uh, it doesn't look good. I mean, but you get these obviously crazy success success stories like Hillary Clinton with cattle futures back in the day that you know. Oh, I you, didn't, oh yeah, I I don't know the full story, but she made a ton of money basically out of nothing betting on cattle futures over like a couple of years. Talk about landline cattle futures. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's talk 2018. The market is skyrocketing forward. Trump is taking all the credit, which is hilarious because you would assume just in through intuition, like apolitically, the person who put in the policies maybe like is the market. That's a good question. Is the market immediate? Is it like can you attribute some of the market's bullishness right now to Obama's presidency or the economic recovery that Obama's team stewarded us through after the crash right before Bush left? Yeah, so. I always want to be delicate when I kind of talk about it from a political standpoint because I, I truly do think during times of euphoria you probably need a Democrat to come in and reel things in because euphoria usually causes a panic like we saw in 09 or 08 and 09. Um, but when things are good to really give it some extra legroom, you need things like a tax cut or you know less regulation and I think that's what you're seeing is that the market is really loving Trump's let's say ability to not regulate frontier markets and or keep them unregulated as long as possible it, it's really unclear why the market is running to me other than the fact that we must be getting inflation coming soon um, and that this tax cut is really going to be the trigger for that so inflation, because not everyone actually really knows what it is, just means that your money is worthless ultimately. Fundamentally, what Jeff is saying is that things like food and gas and your heating bill will be more expensive just because, even though the supply and demand realities are actually very similar to prior, correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a nutshell, it just says that you know we have more income because times are good and companies can get purchasing power in that you know circumstance and what you really don't want is an overheated economy where you're seeing above average inflation every year but we haven't seen it yet so if we start to see it the market will continue to remain hot um, stocks love inflation because they can disproportionately earn more profit 
than the inflation growth, if that hmm. makes sense over air. Just be, yeah, absolutely. Just because they're working at scale, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I you know, I'm big on Disney right now, and I did some work, and Disney's got a pretty heavy domestic business. They're gonna unlock an extra billion dollars in cash flow this year, doing nothing. Just happened overnight. I mean. It's kind of madness, you know, times are good, the market's at an all-time high, and we just dropped the corporate tax rate over 30%. Right, it's crazy. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about 2018. Like, you, if you're willing to let me say this, are actually, in some ways, betting against the market because you're moving money into places that you deem to be safer than just, like, the straight equities, which are, you know, stocks going up and up. Is that true, or is that a good classification of, of your strategy right now? Yeah, I mean, does it make sense to take a step back? I mean, because I'm not right. Sure. I'm I'm pretty yeah. much levering myself to the stock market long term because I'm trying to start my own business in a sense. But y you're right that the tax bill provides really good incentives for a real estate investment. And I happen to know Anna is extremely talented and obviously going to be the next Frank Geary of Portland, Oregon. So, you know, I got to put money with her. It's just the not, you know no-brainer decision right well let's talk about yeah so just tell us like what give us give us like give us some quick hits on 2018 like what what are like and you know go off the rails a little bit we're, we're ready for you like make some things that definitely make some pro prognostications that we're not going to hear if we're yeah. watching nightly business report like i know all my listeners do every night yeah exactly yeah so if you guys are willing to turn off the cnn and you know stop reading the new york times for a second i'll give you some hot takes yeah, and we... you can tell me if if any of these uh make sense um i'm pretty bullish on netflix i'm sorry disney Mostly because I think a lot of money is going to be taken out of Netflix and put in there because they now own Hulu. And I think what you are now going to see is that Disney becomes the much larger player. And I think that puts Netflix in a very interesting position. And this is the hot take that I think they go out and buy uh, a movie theater chain like Lowe's or AMC one of these guys because it opens up a whole new subscription model for them they've got all this new content but I have to tell you on paper uh, if you were gonna ask me whether I thought Netflix would still be around in 30 years if they don't figure out a way to adapt Disney's gonna eat their lunch so let's get into some specifics there because yeah. I'm sure that there are some details people don't really understand yeah. so number one Disney just bought so basically Netflix is a platform that pays production companies for the right to redistribute their content and pay people a fee. Just like if you're making a pizza, Netflix is going to the cash and carry and buying a bunch of pre-made shows and then reselling them to the retail customer at a markup, right? And they've done, they had the best technology for that. They had the best dis distribution system for that. They really were great at the algorithm of targeting who wanted to watch what, why, and then making sure that they were putting new content in front of them that they would continue to watch and that you know obviously they came out of like disc distribution through the mail but we won't go into that now disney who owns hulu which is i with how the so with the fox purchase they now own majority control of hulu and so they for those that don't know disney is now uh in the due diligence or i, I guess the regulatory process around 
buying Fox Studios. After this, they're going to own 40% of television and 40% of movies. So when I say, you know, Netflix is in trouble, I'm, I'm really saying that Hulu is going to be all of Disney and Fox's catalog, and they are not going to allow Netflix to have this anymore. They've already said they're not renewing their, their contracts with Netflix. It would be really interesting to be able to be in like a high-level boardroom at one of these organizations and listen to the conversation where there are two legitimate sides for this discussion. But on the one side, you can argue that people are just looking for content. If you're on Amazon and you're looking to watch like Sneakers, the 1991 thriller with Robert Redford um, about like code breaking. Do you ever have you ever seen that movie? I have not. Okay, you should watch that movie. It's incredible. Um, and you see that Amazon doesn't have it, you just click over on your smart TV or your Roku or whatever, your phone, and watch it on Netflix if they have it. But on the other side of that coin, there is something to be said for like binge-watching a Netflix show like The Crown and then just like clicking down on your clicker to see that there's another episodic television show. That has to have some value, right, that there is... People only will search for so much, and they'll also be lazy in some other situations. So Disney's going to pull all that content off Netflix and put it on their own distribution system. They're going to assume that when somebody wants to watch, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not just like Fantasia. I mean, Disney owns it. When they want to watch that Modern Family show, which they own, yeah. they're going to go to Hulu. But maybe Disney... Can Netflix keep an edge from a production standpoint? They're going to have to build their own content from scratch and, you know, maybe they get other players involved. But I think they're going to potentially bankrupt themselves building all that content. It's really expensive to do. I mean, they're spending, I want to say, over $5 billion a year, probably headed towards $10 billion in content every year. I don't know how much is original, but... I mean that's that's a big number and they just lost their their top show right I mean House of Cards is done or are they coming back for a season I, I keep hearing multiple y you know reports of what's going on the question is can Kevin Spacey get prosecuted for that scene in South Carolina at the Citadel where he has gay sex with his with his boyfriend from like 25 years ago like was that consensual has anyone like actually <laughs> gone into that like was there a power play on set where that guy was forcing and doing that is that not funny I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> I I just I it's like that show could have become a, a pure represent Kevin Spacey could get elected president Kevin Spacey definitely likes having gay affairs Kevin Spacey is like a powerful motherfucker who can like make people do things they don't want to do. Turns out that that was him just playing himself a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really the irony and all that. It, it felt like they were setting it up for this bombshell to get dropped. It it all seems, hmm. it seems scripted. It, I, you know, I, I, I don't get it, but all I know is that I think Netflix is done. Um, You want to talk something interesting, though. Not on for, this podcast. Yeah, I know. Let's skip it. For for anyone that is in dire straits right now over this tax cut, I think you have the right to be. There was very little give back to the people. It was very corporation heavy. Now, I've learned in in this life you can be a a bear or a bull. You can't be. You have to be one or the other. Like, and being a bull makes your life go a lot more easily. So. If I'm going to frame this through a bull's lens of how the American people get some help here is that this tax cut creates such exorbitant corporate profit 
that it is finally time to justify an infrastructure bill being passed. And I'll get to the hot take in a second, but I want to just briefly describe the path of how I think we get there because a lot of people are saying, whoa, you're going to blow up the, the government deficit even further um, doing this by now on top of a tax cut, now increased spending. I think what's about to happen is, is you're going to see really rich people pay taxes for the first time and that there's a lot more money overseas than we actually give credit for. And so I think when uh, Donald Trump effectively made it, you know, very easy to launder money into the United States for between, let's say, eight and whatever the sliding scale is, 12 percent, you know, you that's very advantageous. If you're Putin or any of these guys that have crazy amounts of money, the dollar seems pretty good. I don't think any of these guys find Bitcoin a reliable long-term plan for them to launder their money. The dollar is the new Bitcoin. That's Wow. Dollar is the new Bitcoin. I love that. Yeah. That's paper. Cat, cash is king. Yeah. Um, so to bring some context to that, not only are companies doing this, but individuals oftentimes will take their money offshore to avoid international taxes. For instance, Apple is based in Ireland and they have hundreds of millions of hundreds of billions or tens of billions of dollars sitting in cash accounts out there that normally they would distribute to a sh at, to shareholders as a dividend. They haven't done because they wanted to avoid the high tax rate. Jeff is saying now that the corporate tax rate is lowered, they might repatriate that cash. And in fact, there's even a specific part of the bill that says you can repatriate it at like a special rate. Right. I mean, just to kind of give a brief summary of what that is, is Apple's got, you know, billions of dollars sitting in China right now that they paid, let's say, 10 to 15 percent on. They'd have to pay 20 percent in the Obama administration to bring that money back into the United States, make purchases, pay dividends, buy back their own stock, which are things you can do with your discretionary cash. Um now they're saying you can get this in for half that rate. And I, I think that if I'm a corporation and I see what's happening now, there are pockets of the economy that look very attractive long term. And so I think you'll see this government deficit may not actually be as bad as we think could possibly even be headed towards a surplus. And even though it would be a one time two-year thing, maybe three-year thing, people would get very giddy, and I think they could pass infrastructure. But do you think Trump has a bigger button than Kim Jong-un, like, physically? Like, do you think it actually is bigger? How big are we talking here? Like, F.A.O. Schwartz, like, comedy big? Like, that's the button I would put on my desk if I was Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, like, you know, the one you see in the opening of The Simpsons, uh, you know, at the nuclear plant, right? It's, but... I'm sure he had one commission to make sure that it was larger the minute he sent out that tweet. All right. So breaking news. Jeff loves Trump. Um, <laughs> so anyways. All right. Let's go back to the movie theaters because that's within the scope of this podcast. I mean, right now, this is just like an extended interview with Guy Rizdahl on Marketplace. Yeah. Let me just finish okay. the, the infrastructure. Okay. The hot take is yeah. everyone has said Tesla is a bubble and. I've never believed that they were a car company to begin with. I always thought, right, what Tesla was actually trying to accomplish was f free electricity to the world. And Edison basically, through a smear job, discredited him. 
with solar and Tesla batteries, that is a game changer. And I think that infrastructure bill, you if if you start to see the Russians hacking public utilities, you could get a mega contract for Tesla to rebuild America's electrical grid. And it wouldn't just be Democrat driven anymore. You'd use the cold, a new Cold War to get the Republicans to buy into it. That's awesome. There was a story on PBS actually two weeks ago about Vermont and how much there's a utility there called Green Mountain Power. Mm. A woman runs it. Oh, I don't know if she owns it, but she's the CEO. And she is right now creating a really you know, individually distributed um, network of power supplies in Vermont for homeowners where they have Tesla batteries and solar panels. And ultimately, they can sell back into the grid. Um, and it, it's working. I mean, the problem with Vermont is, of course, it's tiny, it's white, and everyone thinks the same. So that's not a problem for them, but it's a problem for scaling up their ideas because it's not actually how the world works. Sorry, Bernie Sanders. But um, that is a real-time example of what you're talking about. And there's just something in my heart about those ideas, though, that always seems like... We're so unwilling as a people, you know, this is where my Luddite sensibilities really are not good for the world's progressivism with a small p. We should rip down the power grid and start over. Like, we shouldn't be afraid of technological advances in this sense. Why is it so difficult for us to use the advantages of all this incredible technology for good? Instead, we're, like, really good at making sure that, like, everyone can get, like, DVDA porn downloaded as fast as possible so I think what it truly comes down to and th this is really you know why people like yourself and Anne are great to the world is that they want to do good and and also be business people as is, is that um, there's such pushback because things like solar take jobs away long term right this ultimately is some form of automation because you need you know, people on the ground and on an oil rig getting the nat gas and the oil out of the ground. And, uh, right, that's why coal is so popular. That's why all these things, they're trying to push back because it's, it's jobs at that, that point. And the problem is, is that a lot of the people in charge, I don't think, view it as a moral obligation to employ. And they should, right? I think at this point, we need to be investing in, actually creating new industry like that should be a line item in the R&D budget for every company how can we further our industry to the next to the singularity to something we can't see right now like you should be spending money on these crazy ideas because you know the the semiconductor computer chip came out of Bell Labs right you know a telecom company it didn't come from Intel you know so Things happen when you just have so much corporate profit that you can spend money on, but you actually got to go spend that profit now. Well, it's interesting that then Uber, who comes to mind as somebody who is spending tons of money on R&D, as are Google and Apple, specifically with transportation and technology solving transportation, to me... I fucking hate Uber, first of all. I don't like getting in someone's three-year-old Honda Civic that smells like pine tree. I'd rather get in like a a big crown Vic that some guy from Ghana is driving or there's like a plastic barrier between us and have him treat me like shit. That's just me. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't like somebody with like, who looks like me, but 20 pounds heavier with a bigger beard 
driving around an Uber on the streets of a city so that he can play video games later. I don't know why I don't like it, and I'm apparently a judgmental prick, but all these cars on the streets are not a solution. Like, there was a, there was a story about New York congestion issues based on Uber. It's too much on-demand. Like, Uber's making money on all this stuff. Uber makes money every single sale. These drivers are fundamentally not long-term employed with this. There's, they, you know, they don't have health care. They're spinning their wheels. They're not creating wealth for the generation behind them, as far as I can tell with a back-of-the-envelope calculation. They're paying their own insurance, all this stuff. So ultimately, ev- the society is getting stuck with the negative externalities, but everyone is celebrating the corporation for making all the money. So now they want automated cars. Are automated cars the solution? Is that the singularity we're looking for? What about better bike lanes? Like why? You've been in Portland for a couple of days. Biking here is an efficient means of commuting. It's not just like a hippie thing. You can't bike 40 miles in the rain, but you can bike four. Yeah, but I would also say, you know, You've lived here and in Boston. I am scared shitless every time I go biking in the city that Portland is built for biking. Portland is built for the future in a lot of ways because I think that they can sustain a mass uh, inflow of young people looking for work uh, when Seattle and San Francisco ultimately bubble when you know one of you know the technology bubble cracks or whatever i don't know what's going to cause it but you know these intel defective chips seem like a that's a interesting new angle to yeah. the destruction of the world we should talk about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's hot off the presses got any direction let's take a quick break and call last week's guest Landline, it's last week's guest, Anna Lucy, uh, talking about Mad Men, 10 Years After the Fact. All our other shows are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen, Stitcher, etc. Hey, guest, how'd that show go for you? Ugh, too sigh. <laughs> Not at the height of my, my uh, energy or sobriety in that one, so if you listened... Congratulations. You're a real pal. Well, our, our listenership is pretty good on that episode. You sound surprised. I do. Um, I, let's just say I, the incredibly timely recap of Mad Men has really fascinated our audience in a way that maybe I, I wasn't expecting. We've got one listener who called in and left a message that he actually started watching Landline. I mean, watching Mad Men. Hopefully he's watching Landline too. We watched. Let's. Yeah, don't watch Landline. Yeah, we. So we. This is uh, Anna, the partner on the movie Annex on Landline podcast, which are multiple shows available in the archive. And we recently watched on Amazon Prime the movie Landline with Jenny Slate and a bunch of other people who used to be famous. Edie Falco, who was the dad. The guy with the curly hair that's famous, who's the Jesus in um, Big Lebowski. John Turturro? 
Yeah, that's it. So, anyways, that movie sucks. Although we do think it might be driving traffic to the podcast. So, thanks for that, Google Analytics. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. If you ever use landline for something, something with you. what's that? I want to share a landline moment with you for my last week as I get ready to drop off baby Homer. Okay, and then we'll let you go. I went to a rock and roll show Friday night, and it had been a while. Um, super fun. I was watching uh, my coworker Weston's band, The Thermal. Um, and basically what I wanted to report was from the front lines of the rock concert in Portland, Oregon, not a cell phone in sight. Wow. Yeah, so it was a really, um, I just, it, it transported me. It was, it was an incredible um, audience, super present, and lots of amazing energy. So um, three cheers for keeping the cell phone in your pocket at the concert. Well, that's great news, and it dovetails nicely with the news that Kim Kardashian said she was going to use less social media this year. So maybe the tables are turning. I can imagine a legitimate rock show in Portland being a pretty dicey place to pull your Samsung Galaxy Note 9 out to handwrite a message with your stylist. So. <laughs> totally. Um, well, uh, big up to, to our listeners, to your listeners. Thank you for uh joining the crew on landline yet again and uh r.i.p ishi girl we love you all right thanks babe we'll talk to you later bye so once again that was anna lucy the guest on the movie annex on landline podcast last week's episode anna and i reviewed Mad Men 10 years later we really didn't get into the show very much, but you might find it entertaining. We did do it on two bottles of champagne, so if you're looking for a little bit of a disjointed piece of performance art in podcast form, that's the episode for you. In the past, we've also reviewed a lot of great movies um, at the theater. The whole key is going to the theater, and we talked this time about how you can't really go to a theater when you've got a newborn baby. Anyways, let's get back to the show with Jeff. Thanks again for listening. Call the landline 503-894-8480. Leave us a message. Suggest a guest. You can also email us at landlinepodcast at gmail.com. You know, these Intel defective chips seem like a, that's an interesting new angle to yeah. the destruction of the world. We should talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> hot off the presses. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know what to make of that because it bugged me a little bit when I saw that Apple said every single iPhone, iMac, and iPad is compromised. What does compromised mean? Is this Rogue One that, you know, someone put a little... Uh, you know, dick, vulnerability. Dick pick in yeah. every single computer yeah, chip. Exa exactly. No, the, the the schematics of the chip. You know, I don't know if the rebels stole it and they know where the defective piece is and the Death Star is about to explode. But I, you know, I have no idea. It's, it's if crazy. the Apple if the Apple Death Star explodes, I will be so happy. I'll yeah. just make a grass fed steak and like watch a sunset and think about Ishii. Yeah. But, okay, wait, we're all over the place. This is a brand new story that came out yesterday <laughs> that every single computer chip since 1995 is accessible to hackers because of a defect defect in the architecture, which is f fucking hilarious to me. Um, all, all too convenient as well, you know? Right. And also, let's just remember, folks, 
that if it is too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Like it takes a lot of work to read through every piece of mail. It does not take a lot of work to read through every piece of email. You have to open, you have to physic. think about all the paper cuts of reading all the mail <laughs> and think about hand delivering something. You would, someone has to like T-bone you in their car and hold a gun to your head and steal the package. Everything that goes out of your computer is compromised. Everything. Everything that goes out of your phone is compromised. Just assume that to be the case and then work backwards from there. Yeah, I mean, anyone that trades cryptocurrency or espouses the virtues of the anonymity should be saying, if the government, in fact, is watching you, which we know, right? That was the whole point why Snowden left, right? Uh, then they know what your wallet number is. You're you're totally screwed. I saw that the SEC this morning said they are not going to take any, not necessarily not take action, but they're not going to help you if a fraudulent actor starts to basically create fraudulent coins. That your your losses are your losses. That doesn't happen in the public markets, right? So, basically, I'm saying unless quantum computing is going to become a thing. You know, I don't understand how you guys think that th the privacy is there anymore. It, it, we're we're so fucked. It's it's ridiculous. I think that's the end of the podcast series in general. Yeah, <laughs> right there. That's it. Okay, so we're 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 so far from where we started, which is yeah. awesome. Um, Movie I, theaters. Yeah, I want to go back there, but where were we right before that? Oh, the, the infrastructure. So you're saying that companies will will. Sp oh no, we're talking about singularity, and basically, all I want to say is you're right. Boston is not set up for thirty percent more bikes, but it's not set up for thirty percent more taxis. Right. That so Uber is not the solution in Boston. It's the problem. I just think that ultimately, Boston has this great empire built for itself, but. The way they're now building the city doesn't it, it seems lazy it seems conservative and it seems like it's at the erosion of culture at this point and yeah you know i think portland's on the opposite end of the spectrum in some ways but you know you don't need too much uniqueness just to be unique but i think you know portland has a proper balance boston should be taking more uh you know closer look at what you know, places like Portland are doing, and I think it would. You know, you know they, Portland's built a nice infrastructure to survive the the cl climate change crisis when the rest of the world goes bubble oil. Well, yeah, unless the big one happens and swallows us all up, which is a huge earthquake and creates a tsunami that floods the city. But what's interesting is there's no substitute for bad taste, right? That's the cliche. There's something about Boston that I experienced in the last two years, which is that. You know, white male baby boomers who have a lot of capital and are, you know, Irish Catholic or whatever and have just lived in Boston forever. It doesn't occur to them that the 40 story steel and glass box on the seaport with no benevolent architecture on the ground floor and no trees and like giant boulevard streets, it doesn't occur to them that that's just a shitty idea. Like they like the fact that they can finally like join a third country club or get the house in Palm Springs because that model yields a lot of money to the bottom line for development. 
but the buildings are so ugly. Yeah. Well, like, they, the, the, the buildings in places like Boston or think about, like, Pentagon City in D.C. Or, I mean, we can time after time, like... The beauty is that the beauty of a place like Portland is maybe there's less wealth, and so there's like less, there's a tiny bit less greed. I don't even think it's it's that it's that Boston and Seattle and New York and San Francisco right now are super hot. They've got the hot hand. They you know they've got trillions of dollars in stock market value not to mention the private companies are out that are out there and places like portland are good but what i think it is is what in a nutshell is being short-term focused versus long-term focused that there is such a max mass exodus into boston right now because people are so you know there are no opportunity you know there are opportunities in what less than 10 cities in the united states right everyone else is poor they need to come there and that means the opportunity for short-term gain is just totally there right now and it sucks because it's not sustainable long term but it creates an opportunity for cities that see what the east coast is doing because i really do think that you know we're going to see so- something happen it, it's just becoming too overpopulated and it's becoming too white it's pricing everyone's getting priced out it's like not fun living in a mega center like that anymore or, or a tier two mega center because you know i can't do anything i want to do anymore because it's become so ridiculously expensive yet there is a subculture of people around our age like millennials plus who celebrate a lifestyle where they're living in a faceless condo building they're working out at a chain gym the restaurants they go to are oftentimes owned by a larger corporate conglomerate they're it, they're all they're all about like sharing their experiences for like a weekend of the Cape or a weekend of the country on social media. They're working in some sort of like tech marketing job and they're not asking themselves any of these questions. They're just part of this consumer class of sheep that is not wondering how. Yeah, sure. They shop at Whole Foods and like look to see if the label is organic and they know they should be drinking out of a Nalgene instead of using styrofoam cups. But ultimately, are there decisions to move to a certain urban center, work for a certain company and spend much of their leisure time tied to their use of technology, whether it's like, let's meet up through Facebook or Instagram, or I'm going to go to this beautiful place during the storm to show everyone what I'm doing. That's not just like their elite, they're like 10 minutes of their day. That's becoming a large percentage of their identity. And they're not reflecting on like, how are my actions fundamentally shaping the world that the people who are paying for all this shit are going to die and leave. The people building these shitty buildings in all these cities are leaving the earth sometime in the next 30 years unless Peter Thiel works out his like cryogenically like head world or whatever it is. But yeah. we're going to be left with a world with a bunch of shitty architecture and a bunch of companies who don't make anything. And I think people are going to burn out on just sharing like people who are 28 are going to turn 58 and pictures with their tits coming out of their bikini on the Cape aren't going to look so good on Facebook. What are they going to do with their time? Do you watch Black Mirror? No, I, it's too much for me. I know, yeah. I've seen I, like one episode. I'm listening to this. I'm like, you, I don't know if I could. I, I kind of want to recommend it to you and like make you watch it. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I just so I could hear what the next week's episode would be after you watch it. But part of me doesn't want you to do that either. But 
I feel like I just wrote a big mirror episode in my head. And so I always look at those people and feel like I'm their contemporaries and I could have done it if I wasn't such a fuck up with execution. So instead I have a podcast that 19 people live, listen to, which by the way, that's not true. It's 19 million. And if you want to call the landline, it's 503-894-8480. Remember the goal this year is to pass world traveling author Rick Steves on his podcast numbers. I do have a goal in mind. You should call the podcast, leave a message. We'll play it on the show. New episodes upcoming, including the NFL playoffs, cocktail with Giles from Rome, drinking a bottle of wine with Tim, two guys, one cup. <laughs> um, so life is good on landline. Make sure to engage. And the number one thing you can do to support the show is tell a person to listen. I know I have a dedicated audience. I'm looking at the data science. Russia's hacking into it, and I need you to keep telling people to listen. All right, back to the show. Um yeah. All right. Fine. So what are we going to do, though? Like, so people should move back to the country. There's opportunity in the country. Is there not? Like you're saying there's no jobs in places like Fall River and New Bedford. And that's true. But I know from a fact from my network of people who are starting to like actually look at that as an opportunity. There's that's like Portland on steroids. It's it's dirty. It's cheap. There's tons of old buildings. And if we could get a creative class to move there, there could be opportunity to have like a fun you know, sustainable and profitable time. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, take this with a grain of salt because I'm, you know, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, I, I think I'm a Massachusetts moderate in a sense where I try to be as capitalist as I can be, but at some point I cannot escape my, you know, my diehard brainwashed liberalism from Newton. And, what I'm getting at is I think we have to have a discussion about universal basic income. I think that needs to happen. I think it's just such an easy solution where everyone can feed their children and we can, let's say, we can even pursue automating all tasks, but we need to take care of everyone in the process because that is a big decision. If, so either everyone needs to be brought along or we need to use artificial intelligence to assist Lock. not automate right my whole company is assistive intelligence meant to increase your bandwidth so you can further your industry right you should oh, right i i view intelligence almost as a very simple thing do you want to get better in all aspects of your life at all times right are you open to feedback like these small things and it's like we build these pieces of technology to downsize and save cost at, you know, the detriment long term to this consumption economy that really drives everything. And if you saw that go, things really wouldn't do very well. So, you know, I'm kind of torn about all this type of stuff, you know? Well, and, and there is... I th two things. I think the first I already made the point of, which I think FOMO is fear of missing out is the number one. It's the new religion of the world, basically. People don't know that they're a part of it, but everyone is FOMOing constantly. I mean, look at the use of social media on Christmas and Thanksgiving, and everyone wants to know what Bitcoin everyone else is doing. Bitcoin is built off of FOMO. That is, right? Bubbles and stuff like that are built off of FOMO. The best thing for a financial market or anything is always to have it go up because when it's going up people just put in it's a weird phenomenon that people 
buy at higher prices and sell at lower prices in the market. There's, there's that. Well, I had to read this for decisions with Dwight at Babson, a uh, very well-known professor, Dwight Gertz at Babson, who worked at Bain. And, um, but um, for one of the things we had to read was, and now I'll forget the name, but it's like the extraordinary behavior of, it's that like historical writings about people during like the boom times in France and England in the 16th and 17th century where like everything was about selling stock certificates for exploration companies that were going to the new world. People would, the only way to do it was to physically get in line and give your money. Could you imagine what that must have been like when that, that must have been the internet, right? That just, you just kind of like jog my my mind that that would have been really cool to be so, a part of. So people would buy the entire apartment building that was next to the trading house just so that they could sleep there, so that they could be first in line, so that they could give their money. And of course, after eight years, all the companies went out of business. Of course. And everyone lost all of their money. And in fact, like the Dauphin in France lost all of the treasury money and they had to come up with a brand new currency because the entire country was broke because he had bet it all on uh I'll, I'll come up with a name and enter it later but um so okay fomo was the first thing and then the second thing is if people think that hipsters which is not actually what they are anymore but what the world has turned hipster into if people think that hipsters are this tiny subculture they're wrong hipsters are running the world whatever these artistic creative young people are coming up with now is what all of their fat baby boomer parents will be doing five years from now look at farm to table dining look at smartphones look at all of this stuff look at social media and so i think it's fascinating that if people do decide to move out of major cities to places that are you know, whether it's moving to upstate or moving out to little villages or moving to university towns like my parents did in the 70s or moving to second cities or third cities that need like a brand new, you know, revival um, from their failed, uh, you know, um, uh, production manufacturing past that th the world will go that way. It's just questions on like what is the cool, creative, artistic food class going to do because those people are driving the tastes and preference of the world. I truly believe that. And that's where landline actually has a foothold that nobody knows about. It's like maybe people do actually get home phones again because it's nice to call somebody and have their wife answer and ask her how she's doing without sending. Well, you know, when do you talk to your friends, significant others, you don't call their you don't want to like make it seem like you're about to try to fuck them. You know, you're not going to like call your buddy's wife and ask her how she's doing. Unless if, you're the president. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what about our kids? Like I have a kid and I've brought this up on previous episodes. But what if you were calling our house 10 years from now to check on whether we'd lost all your money on the development that Anna's doing and Homer answered the phone? I mean, there are people in my life who had such an influence on me that were my parents' friends because they would tell me jokes and say things and have points of view that my parents would never voice. And that started around my understanding of how, like, there isn't just one way to do things. And I just think it's fascinating that we're missing out on all of that communication based on the way that we've decided to talk to each other. Well, I think I think that if this intel thing or just something like it takes off you're going to see people move in that direction become more simplistic again anti-social media you know at the in some ways i think that i i know i'm a little concerned 
what are you ready to what are you willing to do about it though you know this is difficult for me you know my business ultimately i hope is data science and finding new and cool ways to find predictive mat uh, make predictive models to stock pick but also show someone something really cool underneath the hood that they haven't seen i mean you know without getting too deep into it it's that we we don't we don't look at certain things the way we should in in the market and i think in life that's a lot of the the way things are too that we put gospel on these metrics or whatever it is that we look at and in fact they're outdated and we need to be looking at things differently there was michael lewis's new book which is about daniel kahneman i see it on your shelf right now it's about basically how humans make decisions is it's very brilliant in terms of kind of this whole topic as a whole of how we place too much emphasis on things that really don't work Ah, uh, and that was um, like points per game in basketball makes no sense. Right. Points per 48 minutes. Now we're getting somewhere. But really, it's we want to assess the physical raw talent of the player. Right. Depending. You know, what are mm. we doing? Right. And that's what this book did really well of uh, explaining the evolution of how, at least in the NBA, that's one chapter of how the fallacy of human decision making, which we're going to wrap up here in the next 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. This has been great. Um, be good and be gone. Like the da the Tao of Steve, a movie I've never seen. Oh, uh, I like that movie. Nice. I should see it. Um, it. Just to bring it back to Ishii the dog for a second. So we were on a walk in the woods with Tim the dog, Ishii's younger brother, yesterday as sort of a cathartic experience. And, um, you know, we were talking and crying about her and Anna was. And I had held it together pretty well yesterday. And then finally I just completely lost it and was just sort of like heaving and tears and, you know, feeling awful. And what I kind of came to explaining myself to Anna was that I'm really worried about this idea that we're not always actually doing what we want to be doing. And we miss if, if Ishii really Ishii was a dog, Ishii was an animal. I'll never know enough about what she actually thought. I know she was comfortable and felt safe with us and was an amazing companion. We thought she really represented in us our favorite part of life, which was going to the beach and going on walks and going out on adventures and going camping and like eating salmon skin and, you know, all these things that truly are like, the little nuggets of life. And she really was a mirror for us. I mean, it's not sad for her. She was suffering the last week. Yeah. She had an incredible life. She went out with both of us in the room and she was like, she licked her lips right before she died to show that she was happy because the like pain medicine had gone in and she had made peace. And we were able to like cheer her on to her next existence. It's us that's left holding the bag. And we're sad because we're not no longer get to use Ishii as a, a representation of what it is we like. And so I know that that's a little bit of a stretch from the Michael Lewis chapter, but well, it's the same way. Like, how do we val like accumulating wealth, for instance, what is wealth? I mean, that's a big philosophy question, but how but how do we get there? And and is your the dollars per year that you're making minus taxes, minus where you live, minus the time spent commuting, minus the time spent in an office building how much is that worth versus other opportunities that are out there? Well, I think it's touching on exactly what you just said at the just on, about Ishii in general. What Ishii represents to me, my dog's Machi, Machi Pupchu, 
Um, what she represents to me, right, is in that sense showing what life really is. And I con she's a constant reminder that all the bullshit that I'm doing involving stocks, it's synthetic. It's fun, and I love to talk about it, and, you know, I, I hope this is my career forever. But at the same time, the the what, you know, Ishii is doing, right, Machi can constantly pull me away and remind me that there's more to life and I think that's what it is is that it's hard now having someone that served this amazing purpose really keeping me you guys grounded in some sense is uh, I, I don't know I think there's something to kind of say about that uh, maybe it's the virtue of having a pet for the first time yeah, or pets in general. Yeah. All right, let's pretend you're on Mad Money. You've got five minutes left in the block. I'm Jim Cramer, but I'm not going to do an impression. We're talking about a bunch of stuff. What's happening in 2018? Jeff, the stock. So let's the hedge fund thousandaire. What What are we talking about? Give us bad, good. And yeah. So I think we, we got to really be conservative this year, just because there are a lot of expensive stocks. But you did get this tax cut, and there are a lot of big large companies that have amazing cash flow that are going to get enormous growth in that cash flow because of the tax cuts. You know, I mentioned Disney before, Verizon coupled with, you know, net neutrality being done temporarily. I do th I say temporary cuz it will be temporary, but they will do very well in the process. Obviously, people may have ethical issues with that. Um I really like gold. I think we're going to move back to just the conservative safe haven, right? There's no society on this earth that has not printed their money worthless. And I don't think it's the U.S., but I think Japan does not look good right now whatsoever. I think the yet you're going to see the yen take a real hit, maybe not this year, maybe not next, but they are in trouble. They're getting very old, and their population is declining like mad. Um, Europe is the same way. Uh, I like Franklin Templeton because they have tons of cash and no one likes traditional money managers because they just go and buy the S&P 500. I think the S&P 500 may be our, our new worst enemy five years from now because everyone owns it. It's becoming a crowded trade and it's creating price inefficiency because stocks like Tesla that make no money right now get bought by these index funds and maybe they don't deserve to be that high. Right. So uh, I would caution anyone. I, my recommendations are to take very specific conservative company risk. Disney, Verizon, Franklin Templeton. I like Macy's because they own all their real estate and retail is fully domestic, pays full tax rate. They just got a huge bail. I mean, this is a retail bailout. That's another one. Um, I think. You know, if we're talking geopolitical, I'm afraid that Trump may have made Jerusalem a sitting duck. And what does that set a precedent for if something actually happens there? Um, you know, I just hope that wasn't his motivation all along. I'd like to believe it wasn't, that he actually is a friend of the Jews. As a Jew, I would love if he was a friend of the Jews. It would let me sleep at night a little better. But obviously, uh, you know. Well, his daughter's a Jew, and we know she loves he loves her. Yeah. Um, <coughs> okay, you said something to me that really stuck with me when we were sitting at the on-campus pub at Babson, which is that you have to be in the stock market. Just a quick 
for all the listeners out there who maybe are starting to make good money for the first time, who maybe have a 401k, maybe even have some extra cash on hand that they don't know where to put it, they don't get the stock market other than like they're smart and intuitive. Why do you have to be in the stock market? You said something really, you said you have to be in the stock market meaning that you have to have some money in it because nothing beats it. Can you just explain yeah, that? Yeah, and, and it's really investments, but the stock market is really where I'd say the real money is is made unless you're just you know an unbelievable venture capitalist and you have enough money to do that privately, right? But uh, the general concept, there's a, a famous Warren Buffett quote that goes something along the lines of, if you don't find ways to make money while you sleep, you'll be working for the rest of your life. And right now, for people that I'm hoping are listening to Alex's uh, podcast, you know, below the age of 40, the money you put away right now is absolutely essential because there's this concept of time value of money that when we make investments, we require a return. And if we don't get that return, it will go elsewhere for somewhere that will give us that return. And uh, th this concept kind of gets into something called compounded return that if I require, let's call it an 8% return every year and I hold something for 10 years, I want 8% to the power of 10. So I do some quick math and I say, uh, if I'm investing today, right, I'm 28 years old, 40 years seems like a good number. I'm not probably going to retire at 65, but maybe closer to 70 if I'm blessed enough to be able to retire because I think a lot of people aren't going to be able to but if I'm blessed enough to 40 years in the market 40 years at 8% today a dollar today would be worth $22 by the time you were ready to retire so that's a really powerful number and that's 8% right I'm saying if you do some timing or just very basic things you should just always be putting money in the market even if it's a hundred bucks a month but when you do it, if the market goes down 10%, you should put twice as much in. If it goes down another 10%, do the same. If it goes down 50%, you should be going on peanut butter and jelly and throwing everything in because that's where people really make money. You know, if you want to be really sinister here, you know, if I was Donald Trump, I'd want to create an enormous crash again so all the wealthy people could get in and make even exorbitant, more exorbitant amounts of money. And for something I learned in business school, and certainly wasn't the wor worth the price of learning this, but um, something I did come across is that when those crashes happen, rich people are able to carry the losses that they have forward and help them with their tax bill for long enough that it makes it worth it. They, If Coke goes down by half a percent or by half its value, they buy Pepsi take that loss carry forward, work it against their tax bill for whatever it is, and Pepsi basically mimics the same value of Coke over time if you're a diversified portfolio. I mean, it's not as simple as that, but... Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the hope is, right, that stuff like that are, they are tax loopholes in a, in a nutshell. The things that, you know, Liz Warren gets so upset about, right? And I think, hopefully... May, if if Donald Trump is actually a good guy, he's trying to make it so these rich people are actually going to pay their taxes. Well, he's not a good guy, but he might be. Well, I'm, so, I'm saying if he's if he actually gives a shit about making this country a better place, right? Right. It's that creating a more simplistic tax structure, one where you don't have all these 
crazy deductions. It's uh, on paper it does look like things will be more simple. The problem is there was no tax cut for you know, it was a tax cut for the rich, right? But um yeah, I mean, I'm hoping this means that really wealthy people are going to bring their money back into the United States. For all you Trump haters out there, here are two things that will really twist the knife. He shot 36 on the front nine last week, like legitimately, like several parties. Somebody taped it. Fred Funk, who's a professional golfer, yeah. videoed it. So he is actually a good golfer, which is so annoying. Secondly, think about all the women that he slept with, whether or not it's all consensual. I can't tell. I heard it's a pretty hot roster. And I know women think that's such a misogynistic thing to say. But if you really wanted to get mad at him as a woman, you could be like, at least he never gets laid. In fact, he slept with like the 10 hottest women in Manhattan in 1988. So it's it, it just gets worse and worse with this guy. Yeah, the stuff that they're talking about with in this new book about him with his friends wives is absolutely despicable if it's true. All right, well, that's going to be Landline for today. Jeff, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me, Alex. Uh, we should do a reoccurring segment on this where we get a little bit uh, more hot takes and hot hot stock takes with Jeff, the hedge fund thousandaire. Yeah, well, next time, Bannon, Bannon will have assumed control of the country, and I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. Quick book review. I just, or book, sorry, not a book review. Don't worry. Um, uh, shout out book. Have you ever read Philip Roth, The Plot Against America? No, but okay. I know Philip Roth. Okay, so Philip Roth wrote a book where Charles Lindbergh, who is a well-known anti-Semite, actually becomes president, and there's like a dystopian alternate the future. guy? Yeah, and it's very, it's reading it right now for anyone who wants to read something that sort of just gives them a little bit of, I don't know, alternative history that mimics what's going on now. It's a really great book because he does all this shit, but some of the stuff that he does, all the Jewish people think are like, trying to turn him, them into like internment camps and it's really not clear even from a Jewish author's perspective the way he writes it whether or not he's actually trying to do good things for the Jewish people or not it's kind of a mind fuck that that's what i would caution my my fellow tribesmen that there, there are smoke and mirrors that have been taking place for the past 2 years now and just remember to always stay woke <laughs> all right that's landline Thanks for listening. Every Tuesday, Landline Podcast. See you next Tuesday. Call the Landline, 503-894-8480. Leave a message. Email me, landlinepodcast at gmail.com. Remember, the only social media account you can follow me on is Yelp. It's landlinepodcast.yelp.com. I got to get a second review up. Maybe I'll review Jeff's Diarrhea Seafood Restaurant. Um, Cobba Zone. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Tell a friend. Got to do it. Happy 2018. Ishii, we love you. Hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. Landline is hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon. The top, baby. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. 
the best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. We're taking this show to the top, baby. We're taking this show to the top, baby. Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist, Brian Hansberry. 